just this week, uh, Kat Wishing, who's our kids director, and I were meeting with a young lady who's uh, interested in baptism and walking through the gospel. That's what I usually do typically as I um, you know, hear if somebody wants to get baptized. We walk really slowly through the gospel to try to ensure that they understand the commitment they're making uh, to follow Jesus, that they really truly do believe in him and understand the basic message of the Bible. And pastorally, I've done dozens of these over the years uh, with folks who want to get baptized. And typically, um, I, I really slowly go through the gospel in two ways. There's only one gospel, but there are two perspectives um, in the scriptures of the gospel. The first is the gospel on the ground. And the gospel on the ground is very uh, individual focused, right? Uh, the four truths of the gospel on the ground are God, man, Christ, response. And it's really focused on how individuals respond in faith and trust to Jesus. But then the gospel in the air uh, could be communicated, and it is several times uh, in the scriptures, um, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And this is really focused on how God is going to redeem uh, m- you know, hundreds of thousands and millions, maybe uh, myriads and myriads, uh, Revelation 5 says, of individual believers resulting in a whole crea- new creation, a new community of people who are saved by Jesus. And uh, the reason I share this is because that last point of the gospel of the air, uh, in the air rather, recreation, that is what we see today. Jesus began. Jesus begins recreation uh, this morning. Remember, the basic question of the gospel of Mark is this. Who in the world is Jesus? Who is this man? Is he truly God in the flesh? And that's what Mark wants you to wrestle with the entire time. And the main point of this, uh, the sermon this morning is this. Uh, the, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is this. Jesus is the king who is making all things new. Jesus is the king who is making all things new. Remember, uh, we, um, Genesis, the book of Genesis, rather, is so important uh, to understanding the Bible. And we return to it a lot because of that. And in Genesis, the world is created without a lot of hard things without death and disease or rebellion or sin or sickness. And Jesus begins his work of recreating Eden, Eden, right? Recreating paradise, recreating uh, a new heavens and new earth. And he begins that uh, in Mark chapter one this morning. We see three things on, uh, three ways that uh, Jesus does this. First, Jesus begins teaching with authority. We see that in verses 21 and 22. Secondly, uh, we see him begin recreation by um, starting his mission to destroy all evil. And then lastly, we see Jesus begin his mission to end all sickness. That sounds good this morning, right? Authority, end of all uh, evil, and end of all sickness. Let's get after it. Uh, number one, Jesus teaches with all authority. Look back at your Bibles with me. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, God's word says this. Then they went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. Verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Now remember from last week, Jesus has just called his first disciples to follow him and they have left everything to come and be disciples of Jesus. And the first trip they take as they're following Jesus is into a city called Capernaum, which is in the northwestern part of uh, the Sea of Galilee. I've got a map here uh, if it's helpful for you to see where it's at. And in this passage, we get to experience the day in the life of Jesus. Right? Jesus begins his day by entering the synagogue and there he begins to teach. And a Jewish synagogue was simply an assembly hall or an auditorium, very similar to what you're sitting in right now. Well, not uh, aesthetically, but uh, in terms of why we're here. And uh, there, the Old Testament would, would be read and explained by an older teacher. And in these synagogues, it was customary among the culture for, uh, for them to allow a guest teacher to stand up and to, to explain a portion of the Old Testament. We actually see um, Jesus do this in uh, Luke chapter 4 where he stands up in the synagogue and explains uh, Isaiah chapter 61. So uh, this week, if you've got time, read Luke chapter 4, and you'll see 
an example of that. Now here in this passage, in Mark chapter one, we don't get the exact content of what Jesus said as he taught that day, but we can infer from last week's message that his message would have include, included several things. Probably the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near, right? It's closer than our hands. Um, he would be telling people uh, to turn from life without God, or the theological word for that is repent, and to turn to life with Jesus, walking uh, with him, trusting him, loving him. And as Jesus taught in verse uh, 22, um, verse 22 rather, tells us uh, there's two attributes of his teaching. I wonder if, as we were reading, did you catch those? Look at back with me in uh, verse 22. And uh, when I say this, like, look back at w- with me, I, w- I really want you to, because my goal, this is kind of an aside, but my goal, and even the way I'm trying to communicate, is to help you go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, without me, right? And, and to look into, uh, I had a great idea, and then it just went away from me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's for you to uh, see things in the scriptures yourselves, right? Um, so that you can continue to walk with Jesus, you know, and, and glean things from the scriptures. So when I say this, I want you to really look. There's two things about his teaching in, in, in verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as uh, one who had authority, and not like the scribes. So you see the two things? He's teaching with authority, but not like the scribes. Now let's start with the, the scribes. What does it mean that he was teaching not like the scribes? Well, to be a scribe in the Bible meant that you were an expert in the Torah. What's the Torah? Well, the Torah is just uh, the uh, first five books of the Bible, uh, of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Levit- uh, Leviticus. There we go again. This is so fun. It's like, somebody take me to the hospital if the lights aren't coming on and off. Anyway, Torah, first five books uh, of the Bible, and uh, scribes would have been a group of pious men who were uh, literate, which was rare uh, in Judaism, and they would have frequently taught in the synagogues, and uh, they would have even been given the title of rabbi, so as they're walking through the communities, uh, people would have called them uh, rabbis. And in contemporary language, um, in our day and age, if you can think of these men as uh, academics or professors, Right, uh, they're kind of the, the most intellectually esteemed in their contemporary uh, culture. But in addition to being academics and professors, they're also lawyers, right? So they, um, they could uh, issue an interpretation on an Old Testament law to two individuals uh, in the community if they needed to. You know, example of this, you know, say two Jews have a disagreement about how many steps they could take on the Sabbath, or maybe a uh, business transaction went down wrong. A scribe could issue a rule for what God's word says pertaining to that circumstance, and those two individuals uh, were uh, required to follow it. Now, verse 22 says that Jesus was teaching not like the scribes. So what is the contrast? Well, here's the primary one. The contrast was primarily where the scribes got their authority, right? Uh, Scribes got their authority from other men. Mark chapter 7, we'll get to that uh, in a couple months, but uh, in Mark chapter 7, we learn that they drew their authority from the tradition of other men or, or from other teachers, so as they taught, they would say, well, Rabbi Smith says, yada, 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 or Rabbi Jones says, yada, yada, yada. And this isn't necessarily even a bad thing, right? I do this every week with Tim Keller, right, or, 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 or C.S. Lewis. Like we're pointing to uh, what others have gleaned about the Bible. Not necessarily a bad thing. However, the point is that Jesus doesn't have to do that, right? Jesus doesn't have to point to the teaching or interpretation of another because he has it in and, on his, in and of his own authority, Right, Jesus' authority comes from his own divinity. Remember, uh, through our study of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has already been proclaimed uh, God in the flesh in chapter 1, verse 1. And as he teaches, he teaches as if he is God, because he truly is God in the flesh. 
You know, a really cool example of this is uh, if you look at every other Old Testament prophet, when they are relaying something that God would want to communicate to his people, this is what they say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, Isaiah. But then Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he don't ever say, thus says the Lord. He just speaks. John chapter 14, truly I tell you. Uh, John chapter 5, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? Jesus speaks from his own authority when he is teaching. And that's what makes him different from the scribes. In addition, uh, God the Father has issued his stamp of approval at Jesus' baptism of Jesus' authority. If you remember, right, um, he gets baptized, he comes up, the dove floats down on him, and, and God speaks from heaven. God the Father, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then uh, later in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration, kind of in the same vein of Jesus having authority, listen to what God the Father says again. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If you don't leave here with anything else this morning, if you, if you obey that command from God the Father, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That would be a good week for, for all of us. And as Jesus is teaching uh, with this authority, which is confirmed by the Father from heaven, look at the result in verse 22. They were astonished. Again, as uh, Jesus' public ministry continues, Mark has one question he wants us to continue to ponder. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? And how does this uh, teaching uh, truly impact us? Right? And I even mean that for a doubter in the room and a seeker. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know if I believe uh, in Jesus. I want you to really engage with the claims of who Jesus is claiming to be in this passage. And as followers of Jesus in the room, you're in the room and you're like, hey, I follow and trust in Jesus. Then God will want you to take these truths about his son and mature in your faith and trust in him. You know, one of my favorite prayers from the disciples is uh, really short. It goes like this. Increase our faith, Lord. Uh, you see that in the Gospels. Increase our faith. Uh, so doubter, seeker, follower, all of us are wrestling with this question. Who is this Jesus? And his teachings are intended to amaze us. So number one, Jesus teaches with authority. Secondly, Jesus begins his mission to destroy all evil. Uh, look back at your Bibles in verses 23 to 28. Uh, Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw himself into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. So uh, for starters, uh, since there was a significant rise uh, in naturalism and new atheism in the early 2000s, we have to begin this morning by acknowledging the presence of supernatural activity in the story that we just read. You know, you might think to yourself, even as you're sitting there, man, it is 2024 and we're talking about exorcisms, right? Is this really true? Does this guy really believe that this uh, happens? And the answer is yes. So you might ask, well, why in the world is don't we see that as frequently, right? Or, or do, do we believe in the, the miraculous? And a couple of thoughts to begin as we, anytime you uh, see miraculous events happen in the scriptures, I got a couple of thoughts about this. I would begin by saying, everyone believes in the miraculous, in my opinion. Everyone believes in the miraculous, in my opinion. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, some may deny it, but I think if you press them just a little bit further, it's obvious. And the answer is back on page, uh, page one of the Bible. The greatest miracle, or one of the greatest miracles maybe, in the entire scripture, uh, scriptures is uh, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Before we get within even 100 miles of discussing uh, evolution or natural selection or survival of the fittest, that's a sermon for another time, we, we begin with cosmology, right? These huge questions like, how do things exist? How did the world begin? Why is there stuff instead of nothing? And I've asked my, uh, uh, this question to my atheist friends, which I have several of, who are brilliant, and I really mean that. My, my friends who, uh, they don't know Jesus, uh, they, they're, they're atheistic in terms of their worldview, uh, but they're very smart, women and men. And I've asked them this question, like, how do we have things? And I've never had a personally satisfactory answer. You know, the best I've got, you know, in my genuine conversations with them is that, well, there, we began with like this primordial soup. And I always try to like look at them and I'll be like, okay, I've had a lot of soup. And somebody always made it, okay? So just help me understand like where the soup came from if that was there before. Right. So, and I don't want to make a caricature of anybody's beliefs in this room, a room this large. Somebody has, you know, somebody's an atheist here. But, but I do want you to really wrestle with like why is there things? How do we exist? Like why is there stuff? Where did it come from? And I think that uh, really the, the answer to that, no matter where you arrive, will be some form of miracle. You know, Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a phenomenal writer, read everything she writes, speaking of miracles way more elegantly than I do, uh, says this. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Right? All people believe in the miraculous, and we see that through, uh, certainly through creation. But in addition, you might say, well, but why don't we see things like this wild story here happening as frequently today as we did beforehand, uh, or, or during Jesus' time, rather? Why don't we see uh, a, a demonic activity here and now? Well, a couple thoughts. Um, the first thing I would say is, I don't think we have eyes to see it. Right? There is demonic activity, but it's not as explicitly or easily seen as it was in Jesus' time. Uh, secondly, I would say this, um, uh, stealing from one pastor, Kevin DeYoung, he says, the frequency of demonic activity was way more intense during Jesus' time. If you look before Jesus, there was not a ton of demonic activity. And if you look after Jesus, there's some, but there's not uh, as intense and uh, prevalent or frequent as during Jesus' ministry. And then the last um, you know, answer to this question, why don't we see demonic activity in here now, is purely speculative, but as I was thinking about it, so we are products, and our culture is, the, 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 the waters that we swim in are products of the Enlightenment, right? Of naturalism, of the, the, the rise of postmodernism. And as I was speculating on why this would be the case, right? if, if Satan wants to deceive us, just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, if, one of the best things that he could do, probably, in my opinion, would be to suppress supernatural wickedness in a way that would make it more uh, more difficult to believe in supernatural goodness. What do I mean by that? What, what I mean is, if demonic activity was frequently and explicitly present, then people would be more likely to believe in Jesus, right? And, and, and supernatural goodness. If demons obviously exist, like we see in this story here in Mark chapter 1, then it's not too far of a reach to believe that God actually does as well. So maybe uh, it's a part of Satan's ploy, right, to, to deceive us uh, about the spiritual realm. So briefly, miracles aren't bizarre if we believe that the world exists, because that's a miracle in and of itself. And there are multiple reasons why we don't see demonic activity as prevalently today as we did back in Jesus' time. But what is the point of the unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1? Well, remember, Jesus has said his, the kingdom of God is near, and he is teaching with authority. And in, in his first sermon, he calls people to repent, believe in him, follow him, and then fish for other people. Right? And then we see an additional practical implication of what it looks like to follow him in this passage. Right? Last week, he says, fish for others. Like, share the gospel where you work, play, and live. And here, 
Jesus shows us that his kingdom will consist of destroying evil through fighting for the good of others. Right? This is a common example of Jesus. Right? Jesus destroys evil everywhere he goes. You know, just two, two weeks ago, Jesus fought Satan in the wilderness. Right? And there he won, and here he's going to do it again. Right? In this passage, we have a man with him in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And, and that phrase, um, unclean spirit, is just uh, in Judaism synonymous to saying someone has a demonic spirit. And side note, uh, there's a great warning for us in this passage to see uh, that there's demonic activity happening within Jewish worship, but that's a whole different thing. But this guy, uh, he shouts loudly, he disrupts the service, and then he and Jesus have this exchange. And what do we learn in this exchange? Look back at your Bibles in verse 23 and 24. Just then the man with the unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with this, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, in this section, uh, the demon speaks in the plural. Uh, you'll see as we continue to go through the Gospel of Mark, this is very common uh, for, for demons. And in the demon's dialogue with Jesus, uh, they reveal they know at least two things about Jesus. First, they know that Jesus is divine when they call him the Holy One of God. Right? And we spent uh, time a few weeks ago uh, discussing Jesus' divinity as uh, God the Father proclaimed Jesus was divine by calling Jesus the Son. So I want to spend... Um, most of our time this morning in the second truth they confess, which is this. They know Jesus is just and that he's going to destroy them. Now, I get that from the question that they ask, uh, have you come to destroy us? Generally speaking, from this passage, we can see that demons and Satan know theological truth. Right? The enemy knows theological truth. You know, even from two weeks ago, if you recall, Satan quoted Bible verses to Jesus, but twisted them in order to try and uh, deceive Jesus. This is what Satan, Satan is in the business of doing. In fact, uh, this is the most wicked tool of Satan, in my opinion. He takes what is true and twists it. Right uh, In, in the, the, the um, story of uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis, right? He takes God's good and holy commands and twists them. Look at Genesis uh, 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? And I'll tell you, that is the number one question as Satan attempts followers of Jesus, that he will ask you for the rest of your life, did God really say? You see something plain and obvious in God's word, and he'll ask you, did God really say? Run from that stuff. But in addition to knowing a theological truth and twisting it, demons know who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, and what he's come to do. Well, what does uh, Jesus come to do? Well, the demons, they are familiar with Genesis 3.15, where God promised his coming Redeemer would crush the head of Satan and destroy the works of the evil one. In other words, they know that their time is limited. They know who Jesus is, but they do not love him. Instead, they love wickedness. And because of this, they are terrified. Listen to one uh, theologian uh, talking about this truth. He says, not just one demon, but the whole demonic realm quakes in the fear of the recognition that Jesus has come to conquer their realm and to rescue those enslaved by Satan. This is uh, what Jesus has come to do. Anywhere you look, where you work, play, and live, as you're living life, and you look at something and you say, that is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus has come to overthrow that, to destroy that. Any, any, any cancer, AIDS, malaria, flu, hard relationships, domestic abuse, like whatever, like Jesus has come to end that, right? Jesus uh, has come to destroy the powers of evil forever through his power and might. Uh, explicitly in 1 John uh, 3, 8, God's word said, uh, it says, uh, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. And we know the victory is guaranteed when we see Jesus' control 
over all demons. Remember, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Now read uh, verse 25 with me. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. Verse 26, and an unclean spirit threw himself into convulsions and shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. Here we see Jesus' supreme rule and reign over every being in the universe. Jesus is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. When he speaks, creation must listen. And this should give our hearts great rest emotionally when we see evil in the world, and our minds rest intellectually when we see evil in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, emotionally, this truth that you know, Jesus speaks, creation listens, our hearts should rest emotionally because we know the one who rules and reigns. Jesus is king, and there's no harm or suffering or adversity that can come upon you without first being allowed by King Jesus. And I know that's a really hard truth, unless this king is good and holy and righteous and loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine. So if suffering or adversity or trial or hardship do come upon us, we can know that it's actually for our good, even if it's incredibly hard to understand in the moment. You know, one quote I love by Charles Spurgeon talking about this concept. He says, God is too good to be unkind and he's too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And the call of any follower of Jesus in this room who's suffering or has a friend who is suffering from intense evil is to pray and cry and hug and love the sufferer and remind them of the truth that one day Jesus will return and in his new creation there will be no more suffering. Right? I know, I know y'all. Y'all are my people. I know what you're going through. And if you're going through emotional pain, emotional suffering, Jesus is king. He reigns, and whatever's going on in your life is but of a, a, a glimpse, a mist of what is coming for you in eternity, where there's no more tears or pain or suffering or mourning ever, forever, ever again. We will be with Jesus forever, fully and totally fulfilled for uh, decades and millions and millions and millions of years to come. But that truth doesn't just give our hearts uh, pause or rest emotionally. It also gives our minds rest intellectually when we see uh, pain and suffering in the world. Our minds rest intellectually uh, in that evil will not win in the end. We're going through hard things. We can, we can think with our mind. We know evil will not win in the end. Jesus came the first time in the first advent as a humble man born to a blue-collar family to go to a horrendous death in order to defeat Satan and make a way for us to be reconciled to God, to know him, treasure him, love him, and walk with him forever. But when he comes again, and he will, he will come with power and authority and might and end the works of all who oppose him forever. You know, sometimes in intellectual discussions with uh, other believers around, around uh, evil in the world, some individuals want to remove God's sovereignty or his power in order to make an excuse for evil that seems unexplainable to them. So the, the argument goes like this. God would stop this horrendous evil, but he cannot because his power is limited. And this is a very, very dangerous belief, and this is why. It won't work. Listen to one a theologian, John Frame. One may prefer to believe in the weaker God than the all-powerful, sovereign God of the Bible, but she or he should be aware of the cost of such a preference. They may get a solution to the problem of evil, but she or he loses any hope for overcoming evil in the end. She or he gains intellectual satisfaction at the cost of having to face the horrible possibility that evil may triumph in the end after all. So from this passage, we know that evil will not triumph in the end 
because all unclean spirits listen to Jesus with just six words. I did seven. That's not right. With just six words, right? Be silent. Come out of him. He listens immediately. Jesus reveals he is all-powerful over all demonic spirits. And this is a glimpse, just a, just a fragment of what Jesus will do when his new creation is complete. Right? He will finish the work he started in Mark chapter 1. So the demon confesses that Jesus is divine, that he will destroy all evil, and then they obey his commands and how the people react again in verse 27. Look back your Bibles with me. But they're all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, news spread about him throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. They're astonished. Again, the question of the Gospel of Mark is what? Who is this Jesus? And what they're coming to realize is he's no normal man. He's no normal teacher. They see the unique authority of Jesus and his ability to destroy the works of the evil one, and they are amazed. They're beginning to see truly who Jesus is. Number one, Jesus teaches with authority. Number two, he begins his recreation mission to destroy all evil. And then thirdly, he begins his mission uh, to end all sickness. Remember, remember uh, Jesus said the kingdom of God is near in his first sermon, and, that, and now he's teaching with authority. And his first sermon includes uh, other content too. He says, uh, uh, repent, believe, follow me, and tell others about me. And then in addition uh, to that, we see another practical implication of following Jesus. In his ministry, Jesus destroys evil. But secondly, we see in this passage, he begins to heal people. Look at verses 29 to 31. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew's house with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and, she, uh, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You know, after Jesus uses his power to cast out the demon out of the unclean man, uh, the word of his power and uh, his might begins to spread. And in verse 29, the disciples tell Jesus that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And this is an important note from last week. Maybe I can quiz you really quickly. Uh, when I uh, was talking about uh, Jesus' call to follow him, I said that we are called to uh, leave two things. The first is profession. The second is Nobody under next week. Family. So we, uh, profession and family, right? But then I, I added a little uh, caveat on the side, and I said, this doesn't mean that you never see your family again. And we see evidence of that here in this passage, right? Because Peter sees his mother-in-law, which proves the point, you know, you can serve Jesus, but if your mom-in-law is sick, you better get home and see her, right? So, you know, uh, following Jesus doesn't mean we, you know, disregard our family completely, but that Jesus has uh, uh, supremacy. So Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus heals her with a touch. And this is significant, that Jesus heals her with a touch. Right? A touch in Judaism was a sign of compassion or empathy towards somebody who was suffering. And uh, as soon as uh, he took her by the hand, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, God's word says that she was raised up. Uh, this is uh, uh, similar to the, the, uh, the word resurrection, when Jesus is resurrected. So she is healed, and immediately she begins serving her guests. And her, uh, her service to her guests um, in this passage is shared to communicate the complete and total healing that she experienced immediately. And in, in addition to that, to emphasize that our health is a gift from Jesus and that we should use our health for the service of others. You know, her uh, serving immediately after healing can sound demeaning to us, to our contemporary ears. You know, uh, if the millisecond after Jessica recovered from a two-week cold, I asked her to make me a sandwich, y'all would need a new pastor. Right, so uh, service to our contemporary ears is like, this doesn't sound right. But the emphasis here is that it's a privilege to be healthy 
and to serve King Jesus. The, you know, the word serve here is the same words, um, the word in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, where after the temptation of Jesus, the angels minister to or serve Jesus. They're healing him after uh, his uh, battle with Satan. And uh, in fact, Jesus says of himself in Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To Jesus, service is never demeaning. To Jesus, service is never demeaning. And then after this, after healing the crowds, uh, after this healing, rather, the crowds begin to swarm Jesus. Look back at your Bibles in verses uh, 32 to 34. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all uh, who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So people hear of Jesus' ability to cast out demons and to heal the sick, so they flock to him. And because Jesus is kind and compassion, and compassionate and merciful, he heals a ton of people. Yet it's safe to infer that the majority of those who came to Jesus only came to be healed that morning, or that uh, evening, rather. And certainly some, some in Capernaum were con truly converted into disciples of uh, Jesus. But from Matthew chapter 11, we know that uh, some came only for what Jesus could do for them, not to truly follow him. Listen to Jesus' judgment of Capernaum in Matthew chapter 11, um, uh, months after this, uh, these, these healings. Uh, verse 23 of Matthew chapter 11. And you, Capernaum, uh, will you be exalted in heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles, all these healings that we're uh, witnessing today, that were done uh, in you had been done in Sodom, it, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom on, on the day of judgment than for you. Right? The people came to Jesus solely to get something from Jesus, not to believe in and follow him. Right? They wanted Jesus' healing, but the majority wanted nothing to do with Jesus' message of repentance and belief. You know, I've got a friend who I've been praying would come to Jesus for like years. And uh, he, he doesn't live in Raleigh, but... Um, just want, you know, Father, send uh, coworkers into his life, send neighbors into his life, whatever it takes to get this friend to, to follow you. Please, Jesus, do that. And uh, I was hanging out with him in his driveway, driveway recently, and he just started a new plumbing company. And uh, we're sitting there, you know, kind of like the stereotypical male lean on the uh, back of his tailgate. And um, we're just talking about life. And he's like, Jordan, you know what? I'm considering going to church. And I'm just like exploding. And so I'm like, I can't believe this. This is amazing. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, dude, that's awesome. I can probably help you find you one here in Greensboro, whatever you need. And, uh, and I'm like, why do you want to go to church all of a sudden? And he's like, well, for my new plumbing company, I could probably find some new clients. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, of course, the good news is, can Jesus use impure motives for us going to church? Absolutely. We all came to Jesus with some form of impure motives. You know, I think of the woman um, who'd been bleeding uh, for 12 years in Mark chapter 5. The only reason she came to Jesus was to touch his garment and to get healed. We'll get to that in a couple of months. But she left with faith and trust in him. In the same way, my friend can go to church solely because he wants to grow his plumbing business with, you know, that's his initial uh, desire. And God can save him. Jesus can save him through his, the power of his word and his spirit. But this does serve to us as a good warning to fight against the temptation to segment the reasons that we uh, want to follow Jesus or the reasons that we come to him. Will Jesus heal us from sickness? Certainly. Free us from addiction? Absolutely. Will he provide community and through that community provide you opportunities for folks and businesses? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But Jesus is always his whole self. He will also call us to repentance and belief and confession and generosity and obedience and often out of our comfort zone. He also calls us to give and sacrifice and serve and live in the ways that our friends where we work, play, and live might deem bizarre. So when we come to Jesus, let us come to the whole Christ. His promise of healing and happiness, which is available to all those who come to him, but also uh, be, be ready for his call to holiness as well. So number one, Jesus teaches with authority. Number two, he begins his mission to recreate the world by destroying all evil. And thirdly, he begins uh, his mission uh, to end all sickness. So as always, I want to end with application this morning. You know, I want your Monday mornings to be different because of Mark chapter one, that you would take what we studied in verses 21 to 34 and apply it. Think about it, ponder on it, meditate on it, where you work, play, and live for the glory and fame of Jesus. So remember, the main point of today's sermon is this. Jesus is the king who's making all things new. What does it look like for us to apply that? Well, the first thing I would say is be a part of destroying evil. Be a part of destroying evil. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, for Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, all colors and tastes, all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks uh, that a great many things have gone wrong in the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. Following Jesus involves putting the world right. And this might sound like an intense call, and it is. But let me be very, very clear this morning. I'm not calling anybody to take up arms, but for everybody to take up a cross and bear it and follow Jesus to the darkest places to shine his light and free people in, in, in a variety of ways, by calling people uh, to turn from life without Jesus to, to a life devoted to following him and becoming more like him through his grace and power, by helping others grow in Christ through, through discipleship and service and care for one another, by, by going into the hardest uh, uh, you know, uh, community issues in our city and speaking about the glory and fame of Jesus and providing for those in desperate and vulnerable situations so they can know Jesus and also have a meal. Or, 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 you know, be able to do well in their algebra class because they have a full belly. Uh, whatever it is, right? Evangelism, discipleship, caring for vulnerable people. Like, that is the call of pushing back evil. Secondly, I would say, uh, don't neglect the spiritual realm. Uh, another C.S. Lewis quote, and I'm sorry. Uh, you get a lot of C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors in which individuals can fall, uh, about, uh, fall into about thinking about uh, the spiritual realm, devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? There, there is a spiritual realm that is more real in many ways than our physical realm. Yet sometimes we can overemphasize demonic activity as if everything is demonic. Yet other times we can ignore the spiritual realm altogether, which is dangerous as well. So a couple of illustrations of this, maybe uh, to overemphasize demonic activity. Uh, maybe you have a young friend, uh, and she struggles with drug abuse. And there's you know, a subset of thinkers that would be like, well, that's demonic activity. And it could be, I don't know. But she could just need mental health help, right? Or uh, a, a great biblical therapist uh, to, to come out of you know, that addiction. Or on the other end, to underemphasize, uh, let us not forget that when Jesus taught us to pray, one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is deliver us from evil. Right? So don't have an uh, over-interest, but don't uh, have a neglectful interest as well. And then lastly, I would say this. Beware of proximity to Jesus without devotion to Jesus. 
Beware of proximity to Jesus without devotion to Jesus. I'm talking about you know, all the people that came to Jesus' house and got healed and then left and never thought of him again. Right? Think, of the 12, think of the 12 disciples. Judas heard every single one of Jesus' sermons, right? but he didn't follow Christ. And we have nearly unlimited access to Jesus in our context. So let us pray that we take these incredible gifts, like the gift of a Bible, and we wouldn't take it for granted, that we'd spend time in it, treasure it, I'm speaking to the followers of Jesus in the room. Swim in the Bible every day. Swim in the Bible. Right? Don't give it a little touch and then go off to like, swim in it. Dive deep into it. Start small, but create a discipline. It's been in daily time in God's words. And for doubters in the room, maybe you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, I would say this. Allow Jesus' teaching to astonish you. I challenge you to read the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark has 11,000 words. The average reader reads 238 words per minute, which means that you can read the entire Gospel of Mark in 46 minutes. That's like two Super Bowl commercials, right? right? You can do it. And think about the, the, the risk-benefit, right? You're here, you, know, you, you say, I'm not a Christian. You know, what is the risk in investigating the claims of Christ? To spend 46 minutes reading the Gospel of John and, and seeing uh, it, it, what your answer to who is this Jesus might be. I challenge you to do that this week, and I, I bet you it'll be the best 46 minutes you spent in your life. To those ends, uh, let's pray.